You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge lets you drive your electric vehicle on solar power with the world's first two-in-one EV charging solar inverter. Run your EV on sunshine with SolarEdge. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm editor of The Driven website, thedriven.io, and I'm also the editor of Renew Economy, the sister site that looks at uh, renewables and climate change policy in a broader range. But um, over the last few episodes, we've been tackling electric vehicles and the subjects from all sorts of different angles, from manufacturers to customers and network operators and utilities to um, um, charging stations and um, other analysts. And today we're going to take a even different look at it and I think it's one that's just as important and it's the issue of fuel security and uh, Australia is a nation that imports um, nearly all its um, transport fuels. Um, What does that mean and um, what use can electric vehicles do to address that problem? I think it's quite an important one. And I'm delighted to um, welcome our guest today, um, a long-term advocate um, on fuel security issues, a former Deputy Chief of the RAAF, the Australian Air Force, John Blackburn. John, welcome to the Driven Podcast. Good morning, Charles, and thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for joining us, and sorry that you've got a bit of a croaky voice today, unfortunately. I think um, one of the many people suffering from um, the smoke that's been sitting over the Sydney Basin for, God, I don't know how many weeks it is now. Mm, Just imagine what it's going to be like in a few years. Yes, I'm thinking about writing a story, actually, about um, if this is what it looks like with one degree of warming, what's it going to look like with three degrees of warming? And um, it's rather too scary to contemplate. But look, let's do get back to the task at hand. Um, thank you. Um, look, it's great to have you on board. Now, um, just to sort of um, establish your electric vehicle bona fides, you are the driver, the proud driver of a Nissan Leaf. Is that right? Yeah, five years ago, I bought a Nissan Leaf, put 4.8 kilowatts of rooftop solar and a 32 amp fast charger in the garage uh, because we wanted to explore uh, electric vehicles, how practical they are in the Australian environment, uh, how you'd manage them, what the issues were. Uh, And so because of the fuel security work I was doing, I wanted to explore this. So rather than just advocating something, experience it. And how have you found it so far? Just um, we'll get onto the fuel security issues um, in, in uh, very shortly. But just as an owner of an electric vehicle, the issues of range and things like that, um, have you found it? really impressed. I mean, this is a, a very early generation one. I couldn't call it first gen because some of the very first cars in the world were electric, but uh, an early generation one, a range on paper of 160 kilometres. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, aim to get more than about 120 kilometres out of it. But because of what we use it for, we live in Canberra, go in and out of town a lot uh, to various meetings. It's pretty ideal for those range profiles we're using around town. Uh, the performance of the car is very impressive, uh, accelerates very quickly. It was a bit surprising when we first got it. Uh, of course, as you're doing this sort of thing, the issue about range anxiety comes up. A lot of people talk about it. You know, you're sitting there watching the clock go down. And I, I have a sort of wry, sort of comical look at that because part of my background in flying fast jets, uh, many years ago, one of the fast jets I was flying in, in test flights, uh, the profiles we were flying in had an endurance of 30 minutes. 
So if you want to talk about range anxiety, put yourself on, in a jet fighter with 30 minutes of fuel, and when you come back after doing a test and you've got five minutes of fuel left, that's anxiety, <laughs> uh, not in an electric car. That's right, and I, th I suppose the thing with the uh, a jet is that you just can't pull over and just find any old PowerPoint and um, plug it in and charge it up again. Well, you do know that you are going to be on the ground in five minutes, regardless. But it's preferable <laughs> to do it on three wheels in that particular case, rather than in a bigger lump. In a car, look, let's be honest about it. You can pull over the side of the road. Uh, you can sort of find a place to charge it if you're lucky. I might be 15 outlet. It's nothing of the same anxiety, but it's something that you learn to manage. And this was the interesting thing. Driving the electric car, because we have a diesel car as well for long distance, driving the electric car made us really understand energy use much better and changed how we drive our diesel car around town as well. So it's a matter of thinking about it, planning it, thinking the route, uh, understanding the energy use you've got. It's a bit of a mental challenge, but it's good. And uh, it actually makes you understand your energy use a lot better. That's really interesting, actually. And have you been charging your Nissan Leaf? Are you one of these people that sort of top up each time? Or are you someone who sort of tops up um, just every now and again? And I guess because you've got an early generation Nissan Leaf, you're probably topping up more than other people with greater range. But are you a topper-upper every time you use it and just plug it into the wall? Um, or, or whatever charging equipment you've got, or do you just wait every second or third day or every second or third trip? Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely every day, but we do it during the day. We don't have batteries for the house, so therefore we want to use it whilst solar's producing the power. So, But if we go out down the shops, and back, no, we don't do that. You might do a couple of short trips at that. But if we go in and out of town and come back, and so we're down to 65 kilometres range, then we'll charge it up. Uh, sometimes we'll go in and out to various meetings. <clears throat> My wife and I consultants. So we do go in and out of town or to meetings. So if, we, if we're down to about 60k, we'll recharge it. So, but at least once a day. And uh, obviously trying to do that whilst the solar is producing the power. How inconvenient do you find that? Or how convenient do you find that? Oh, look, it's just a matter of habit patterns and doing it. I mean, we take so many other things, we accept so many other inconveniences if you want things like that. I mean, it's you come home, the charger's there, I plug it in. Um, there are a small number of chargers around town, they're growing slightly. That's one of the impediments, the lack of, of charging capability, but that's because it's early on in the life of electric vehicles here. But you come home and charge it, I never have to go to the garage to fill up with fuel actually. So I don't have that impediment. I don't have to queue if there's a problem. Uh, I don't have to hunt for the lowest price. We've done 52,000 kilometers on zero liters of fuel. Feels pretty good. <laughs> that is fantastic. Let's get on to fuel security now. Now, you've been a long-term advocate of fuel security issues. Um, maybe, possibly you can just basically describe what the issue is. Um, my quick stab at it is that Australia is an importer of almost all its transport fuels. That means it's depending on being able to get fuel overseas from other countries. And one of its biggest problems is that we just don't have enough reserves that if something goes wrong or there's an emergency, we're actually um, going to have a problem. That's pretty much the case. Look, years ago, uh, we used to uh, have a lot of our own oil. We had, uh, back in 2012, for example, we had seven oil refineries. And we were producing a lot of our own fuels in this country. But over time, uh, the amount of oil that was being discovered in Australia that was you know, viable to, to, to extract, 
was reducing and it was cheaper to import oil from the Middle East or refine fuels from the Asian refineries because the Asian refineries are much larger than ours. So therefore, with lower workforce costs, they can produce fuel at a cheaper rate. So over time, what's happened is we've increased the amount of transport fuel imports, either as oil or refined fuels, over time. But it happens so slowly. So people just sort of don't realise what's going on. And the market works out where the cheapest fuel is coming from or oil, because that what makes sense to an oil company, you know, maximising the profit, we can understand it. But over a, a period of you know, a decade, <clears throat> what's happened is we've gone from, say, importing 60% of our fuel back in 2000 to over 90% today. We've gone from seven refineries down to four, only one of which is Australian-owned, and that's possibly up for sale now anyway. Um, there's no government policy to maintain any refineries in Australia. So we could be heading very rapidly for a case of where we import all our fuel. Now, this country runs on diesel. You think about all the trucks and the freight and food production and distribution and medicine, distribution, everything, getting to and from work and buses and trains. We run on diesel. So what the reality is, is that over time, we've now got to a stage where we are effectively wholly dependent on foreign-owned fuel and oil companies bringing fuel and oil to Australia on foreign-owned ships because we no longer have any Australian flagships that are capable of moving fuel or oil internationally. So basically, we've outsourced our energy security for the way our society works to foreign-owned industry. Now, look, people say, oh, peacetime, that's all right, business as usual, don't worry about it. But there's no such thing as peacetime anymore. We're always in some stage of conflict, whether it's a cyber conflict or a trade war or on the far right scale, you can say the problems we've had in the Middle East and the conflicts and wars there. But this idea that, look, just leave it all to the market, she'll be right, is outdated. We can't allow our energy security to be the responsibility of foreign-owned companies. That's crazy. My understanding is that um, Australia is supposed to have, uh, under you know, United uh, UN conventions or international conventions, a reserve of about, I can't remember now, is it 70 or 80 days or something like that? The reality so, is yeah. that I think there was, the reserve is actually much less than that. Could you just clarify what it's supposed to be, what it is, and what the implications of that is if, in case there is a blockage? Because... Right. Yes. This is where it gets really confusing. So we're a member of the International Energy Agency. They put in place measures. This is you know, a group of 28, 29 countries. Put in measures after the 1970s oil embargoes in the Middle East to be able to manage fluctuations in the oil market of the world. And because you can imagine, oil prices go up very rapidly. <clears throat> has huge flow-on economic effects. So you want to try and manage fluctuations in that market, be it from a conflict or from things like embargoes. Uh, we're the only member of the IEA that fails to meet our net import stockholder obligations. It's a weird accounting term. It doesn't mean the fuel and oil you've got in the country necessarily. So we're supposed to have 90 days of net imports. So what they do, work out what you're importing in the country, subtract what you're exporting, because we export a fair bit of light, sweet crude oil off the Northwest Shelf straight to the Asian refineries. Because two reasons, it's cheaper to do that, but also only one of our four refineries can actually 
refine that that grade of oil, which was the one down in, in Altona and Mullet. So in the end, you say, what's the net import you've got? Divide that by what your daily consumption is as such, and you come up with a figure called net imports. It's a bit confusing because it includes, I think, things like heating oil and all sorts of things. So right now, uh, back in 2011, we met the obligations, but uh, here we are in 2019 with 59 days. And there's a lot of pressure from the IEA to meet our obligations. So the government's been doing some things. It's bought three days of tickets, which is, it's like a contract to allow you to, to buy some stocks to release to the market in the event of a, of a problem. But we've bought the stocks from the Netherlands. So it's, it's not in this country, it's an option to buy. The other thing the minister said a little while ago that they were going to negotiate to purchase some of the US strategic oil stock reserves held in Louisiana and count those against us as well, so we could say that we had something to meet the market fluctuations. Now, would this do anything for our domestic fuel security? Not really. Whilst it helps with the market fluctuations, what's important to us is the fuel in the garages, in the storage tanks in Australia that allows us to keep operating, our society to keep operating, if there is some sort of interruption to supply. Now, that is a different figure. So with diesel, we run usually about three weeks in the country, but we've been as low as 12 days twice in the last four or five years. Because unlike most other developed countries, we also don't mandate the minimum number of days of real stocks of fuel like diesel or car fuel or jet fuel that have to be held in country. Other countries do that. Korea, Japan, for example, European countries, they mandate you've got a whole minimum number of days of stock. And if you don't hold that, then industry gets fined. But we just leave it up to whatever industry wants to do. So when the energy minister says, oh, we're going to look at IEA net stock holdings, that's to get the IEA member countries up our back. It's not looking at what we have to do. Now, there is a review that's been going on, tasked by Parliament last year. We're waiting for the report to come out. Uh, it was due last December, so it's only 12 months late now, to come out and tell us what the government intends to do about the fuel security. Uh, we wait with bated breath because our National Energy Security Assessment, which is supposed to assess these sorts of things, is also now four years overdue. The actual reality, though, is you talked about sort of three weeks of diesel stocks and sometimes down to 12 days. If there is actually an interruption that lasts for, say, a few days or a week, in effect, though, those diesel supplies will not be readily available to the general population um, quite quickly because they'll be reserved for emergency services and food deliveries and things like that, I would have thought. You would have thought, wouldn't you? So oh. let's look at two examples. There was, there was a problem back in 2014 in Victoria where I think the Altona refinery was down for maintenance and the Geelong refinery was down the road. There was a power system problem, frequency control. So the Geelong refinery got shut down as well. So you think, okay, if the refinery shut down, we must have at least 12 days of diesel. Well, within two days, they started to run out of diesel in eastern Gippsland and in western Victoria. Within two days. Makes you a little bit suspect about some of those figures. Now, let's just say we had three weeks of stocks. If there was an interruption, now look, it's not all going to get turned off at once, but there's so many things that could happen in a supply chain which have not been analysed by the government in the last National Energy Security Assessment. It was a very simplistic assessment. But if something goes wrong, then there, 
is legislation, the, the, the NOSEX, it's a National Oil and Security Emergencies Act or something to that terms. And there's legislation there, but the interim fuel security review published by the Department of Energy back in April this year said that legislation is out of date and it wouldn't be able to be used fast enough or quickly enough in the event of a supply interruption to be affected. So if there was an interruption, everyone rushed out of the garage, but the levers controlling what happens to the remaining stocks from a federal level, the legislation is not actually fit for purpose, it's outdated. So, um, yeah, it wouldn't be turned off because they haven't got the measures to do it at the moment, it looks like. What should remember, we be she'll doing? be right. She'll be right. She'll be right. Well, look, we've got this sort of fascinating thing. We don't have enough refining capacity. We may not be rely, able to rely on the imports because, you know, half of these stocks are over in Louisiana and um, goodness knows how you get hold of them. The other lots seem to be contracted with the Netherlands and that's about as far away as you can get. Um, there must be an easier solution um, considering the emissions from fuel burning and imports and the cost of um, imports. Um, is that where electric vehicles come in? Yeah, it was part of it. So I did a series of three studies with the National Road Motoring Association back in 2013-14, and it was using a fair bit of work they've done previously <clears throat> by a group of CSIRO scientists looking at, looking at how you address this. Now, we're not saying this is a doomsday scenario. We're saying that we're getting more and more uh, at risk because our resilience is reducing. So yeah, if you, it's not only fuel, by the way. You should see our medicine supply chains. We've got similar problems there. But when you import, so import dependent, You've got to say, well, how resilient are we? So when you look at this, it's the same with disasters. You look at what your vulnerabilities are to a disaster, cyclone or flood. You look at how you could improve your resilience. It's exactly the same with fuel. So the first thing you look at is what's your vulnerabilities? Well, are there single points of failure? Are we importing? What, what could we produce in Australia that gives us our own control over things? Now, where you start with all this is the demand side. How do you reduce the demand for fuel? A real simple one. There's fuel efficiency standards. Climate Works did a study that said if we'd done that a couple of years ago, by 2024, we would have reduced our import dependence by 8.8, uh, I think it's 8.8 million barrels of oil a year. That's, what could be higher? Significant amount of reduction in, in imports by having improved car fuel efficiencies. But Melissa Price, as the I think environment minister, just before the last election, delayed the introduction of those. Uh, European emission standards for fuel and fuel efficiency till about 2026 or 2027. So we delayed that in Australia and therefore incurred, you know, increasing oil imports and fuel imports for the next six or seven years. The next thing you look at is, okay, well, what could you do in Australia? Well, electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, gas vehicles are a key part of it. They're not a solution by themselves, but if you can improve efficiencies, and then you use different types of energy for your transport. Uh, so <clears throat> electric makes a lot of sense <clears throat> for short, medium range capabilities, particularly in other cities. Australia has a bit of a challenge because uh, size of the country and our population makes infrastructure a bit of a challenge. So for longer distance, you're probably looking at hydrogen vehicles, uh, much faster to refuel. So the Americans are already having challenges when you get a lot of electric vehicles going to a small number of charger stations and they each need half an hour. It's more of a problem than if you have someone refueling in four minutes for petrol or hydrogen. It's about four or five hundred refuels. 
So you look at these other energy sources, and we, unfortunately, if you start looking at electric vehicles, I think well, it's only 0.2% of our car fleet, and we're 33rd out of OECD countries in the lowest rate of new car sales being electric vehicles in the developed world, because we're just not taking this seriously uh, at, at a federal level. In other words, we're not creating the market incentives to happen. So we've got to look at this as sensible for emissions and sensible for energy security and our resilience. And also for overall health too, because let's not forget all the uh, particulates and the general health things that actually go out um, that are produced by internal combustion engines. Have you got any insight into why this is so? I mean, you mentioned Melissa Price and the decision to actually delay that by um, you know nearly 10 years. Um, that's actually costly to consumers. I think one of the government's own research was that because we have such poor fuel standards or poor standards for our fuel, we um, actually have really inefficient engines. In fact, my understanding is that some manufacturers actually have to sort of, um, make adjustments to the engines they send to Australia because the fuel quality is so poor, and that means we actually have to burn more fuel, and that adds about $600 a year to the petrol bill. Yeah. There's a great climate work study, I think from about 2014, that went through it. said, look, if, if you take the same, whether it's BMW or whatever, or you know, some imported car from Europe, uh, what we are importing is derated engines, and it doesn't have the other parts that make the cars more fuel efficient. Fuel efficient. So it's, uh, to, to import a car at that higher fuel efficiency standard to use the higher fuel efficiency is probably, at their figures, was about $1,400 more. But you're saving yourself about five dollars or $600 a year in fuel costs. This is all average. So after three years, you're ahead on fuel costs and you're much lower on emissions and better on efficiency. I mean, this is like a win-win situation. Um, and the challenge we're going to run into in Australia is that we're one of the few developed countries that's not following this path. So where we're going to find the cars to import, say, in another five or six years, that are capable of taking this less efficient, dirtier fuel is going to be a challenge. It's going to give us a bit of a challenge to find sufficient cars to import to satisfy our demand in this country to be able to run on crappy fuel. So... That's going to be an issue that's going to happen. So we're going to have to end up importing these higher standard fuels anyway because some of the cars we're importing will need it. Um, I can understand what's going on. To my view, the modifications that would have to be made to the existing refineries would not be cheap. And therefore, one could imagine that perhaps industry wouldn't want to make those modifications when a lot of these refineries are pretty old and we don't know how much longer they're going to be kept in service in the absence of any government policy or incentive to maintain refining capacity in Australia. So, hey, you know, let's just delay this as long as possible. But it's got all those negative impacts on us. Uh, and it was done so quickly a month before the election that it does look a little suspicious to me. It's quite extraordinary. I remember Josh Frydenberg speaking about this very issue when he was Environment Minister um, before Melissa Price and um, and um, he was um, he raised this issue about fuel standards. Uh, I think an editor in the Sydney Morning Herald about two years ago, and he was shouted down so severely by the Murdoch media, who talked about carbon tax of wheels and things like that, and all it was was yeah. just a standard. And um, he actually turned up at an um, energy efficiency conference. Um, 
a while later and he was asked about, well, where are we going with those standards? And he said, well, you saw the response. We can't possibly do that now. Um, he just he just sort of completely, he got too scared um, for fear of being shouted down by the um, by the Conservatives. What's, 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 I mean, do you, I don't know. I mean, what, what does motivate people? Is this just simple ideology for the sake of ideology or is it vested interests or? No, 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 no. So if you just go back and have a look at the, one of the things I, I was part trigger of was a 2015 Senate inquiry to transport fuel security. Um, the actual current inquiry is coming out of a 2018 Joint Parliamentary Committee on Critical Infrastructure report. And that's what Andrew Hasty drove there. But, but the 2015 inquiry, it's illustrative to go and read the evidence uh, that there was no problem at all, the industry can handle everything, that came from industry itself. So go and read what the fuel companies wrote in the Australian Institute of Petroleum, which is the lobby group for the fuel companies, the oil companies. Uh, I understand they're the group for the four main companies, three of which are foreign-owned. So we've got this powerful lobby group and powerful industry, most of which is foreign-owned, uh, providing a lot of pressure on government and through the media. The don't rock the boat, let industry do it as it is, it's, it's okay, there's no, nothing to see here. They even told the inquiry, and this is in Hansard, so I'm not making that up. They even said the inquiry that it wasn't appropriate to use national security scenarios like you might use to analyse a defence threat or a future conflict. It's not appropriate to use those types of scenarios for a national energy security assessment. We should, in other words, we should just use market forces factors. Because I'd argued that the national energy security assessment, the last one was done in, uh, back in 2011, by the way, um, didn't even look at any conflict scenarios. It's purely uh, a repeat of an oil embargo in the Middle East or uh, a 30-day outage of Singapore refinery. Those are the only two scenarios they looked at for fuel supply interruption. And that's incredibly naive. But the industry is saying you can't look at the potential impact of a regional conflict on our fuel supplies, even though we import over 90% of them, by the way, because it's not appropriate. So you've got to understand the pressure coming from the industry lobbies on the politicians and how that appears to have constrained them. I mean, there's enough sort of evidence of that constraint when you see the behaviours. It's not just fuel, just look what's happening now with climate change. Um, it's some strange forces that are happening there that don't get enough attention with the Australian public because we're a little bit too complacent until things turn to, to absolute crap, which is what's happening now uh, with the fires. Must be absolutely incredibly frustrating for you, because I mean, this thing about you know not appropriate to sort of view view um, fuel as a national security issue. Um, one of the things that my understanding from the armed services is that in anything that even re re um, you know vaguely re resembles some sort of conflict or situation, the first thing you worry about is your fuel security and your and your supply pipelines and things like that. But um, look. Yeah, but yeah, it, it, it's a case. But, but again, what I found, uh, much to my own personal shame, after I left, I left full-time service in 2008, I only left the reserves earlier this year. But the assumptions I'd made of how supply chains and the civil supply system worked when I was in the military were basically wrong. Because when you're in the military, you look at these scenarios and you think, well, what could possibly go wrong? I assumed that same sort of thinking was happening in government about other critical functions of government and our, our resilience as a country. <laughs> well, I was wrong. So when I looked at this fuel bit, I went, hang on, um, we're all off in la-la land. 
and assuming this foreign-owned industries are going to take care of us because they're pressuring our politicians. Well, I don't think so. that's a big assumption. And I, since then, I've been doing a whole bunch of other, with the think tank I'm involved with, looking at a whole range of other areas, including maritime trade, import dependencies. Uh, we've been looking at medical supply chains. I've got to tell you, the assumptions we make every day whether it's there's going to be fuel in the garage, you know, the petrol station when you go there, or when you go down to the chemist that the medicine you or your child needs is going to be there. Some of those assumptions are fairly shaky because the analysis of the risks of those has not been done because mm. we're too complacent. It's, it's not just fuel. This is a lot of critical things for our way of life in this country are built on some pretty shaky assumptions. Let's go look at electric vehicles as a solution then. What do you think should be done? How quickly should we go and how, how can we get there? Well, first off, there has to be a logical discussion that in the end we are moving from a fossil fuel-based energy system to a hybrid. It will be a hybrid. It's going to be a mix of a whole bunch of things. There's no single solution. So number one is... We don't need to start fighting between all the different alternatives. They're all going to be a part of the solution. When we look at it, uh, we've got to get the rubbish out. I mean, the prior to the last election, I think it was Michaela Cash talking about Johnny can't drive his ute on a weekend if it's electric. Something like that. Um, it was... Uh, you know, one of the other assumptions I've made is that the ministers were intelligent. <laughs> but anyway, that was an assumption that I was wrong about as well. So what I'm going to say is, let's stop the political farce. Electric vehicles will be a part of a sensible transport system in this country. How to best manage that transition is a challenge. Now, look, we can't put all this on the sort of government. This, with our size of our country and our relatively low population density outside the major cities, infrastructure is always going to be a problem for us. But where they make sense to put in place... How do we create the market conditions? I'm not talking about permanent subsidies. How do you create the market conditions to encourage the deployment of infrastructure and the adoption of these uh, areas? But at the same time, better plan the electricity networks and systems to be able to cope with the increasing demand. And there's plenty of examples of how to do this, whether you're in California or Europe or other countries around the world, particularly Scandinavian countries now. There's clear ways of doing it, but it has to be designed. And it's not something as well, we'll let the electric car importers sort this one out. We need to see how other countries have done this sensibly. And I said, particularly Scandinavia, the countries are very clever at doing an integrated plan because our electricity networks are slowly being improved, but we're not designed properly. I emails trying to do some pretty good stuff about it. But as we go through this, you've got to have a system design. Then you've got to say, these are a part of the future. A problem is, of course, the cost point. The price of, of cars, I was fortunate to get the leaf when I was on a special at $39,000. But to do that and put solar on the roof and the charge, I was, that was a $50,000 investment. Um, general average, they have a family and doing a whole bunch of other things, they're not going to fork $50,000 out. So when mm. you look at this, the solution in the end is not solar on everyone's roof and your own personal charge. It can't work that way. I was fortunate I could afford to do it. So we have to think about the infrastructure where within communities there is solar production as a community, that there are recharge points. Um, and that is how over time it will happen. Not every man or woman for themselves by just 
sticking their own solar on the roof, their own batteries in the garage, their own charge point, and you know, I'll look after my electric car. Because I often say, if there was a major fuel crisis, I'd feel really good that I could go driving around in my electric car to the supermarket. The trouble is, when I got there, the chances are there wouldn't be any food because they need diesel to distribute the food to the supermarket. So we have to look at electric vehicles as a part of a bigger solution. How do we bring it in? How do we think about community infrastructure? How do we think in a broader scale than just everybody doing their own thing? But that needs a plan and it needs some champions about it. And we're sadly lacking that, certainly in the current uh, government, because there's some fear factor that Johnny can't drive his ute. Well, I think Elon Musk has shown that Johnny can still drive his ute, even though it might be particularly out <laughs> It's still there. Um, yes, I, mean, I, often, I, I often joke that the Nissan Leaf, the early version, was particularly ugly with the weird lights out the front. But uh, I was talking to the engineers about it because I was involved with engineers in our manual testing. And they said it's all, it was designed that way because the car is so quiet. You've got to ensure that any wind, wind buffeting on the windscreen is managed. So those sort of retro headlight design shapes at the front were for aerodynamics. And once you realize that, you get over the look. Uh, but yeah, it's, we just need an integrated system plan of doing this. There's no simple one. We don't have the political leadership at the moment. So it's going to have to be led by groups such as yeah, that you're involved in. Yeah. The community groups say, hang on, enough, but we can't do it by ourselves. We do need an integrated plan. Well, we're getting an integrated system plan, as you mentioned, from the Australian Energy Market Operator, whose responsibility it is to manage the grid. And they obviously think that we need one because they think the transition is inevitable. We can't actually stop it. So we've got to make sure that we can manage it and keep the lights on and, and, and do whatever. And um, their draft plan, which came out um, this week, is really quite interesting because it just shows what is possible um, as long as we get cracking with it straight away. Is there any comparable body um, for fuel distribution and the, and the car industry and transport? I'm not too sure that there is. No, there isn't. But and again, I was had the opportunity to uh, be on uh, the chief scientist, Professor Finkel's uh, Hydrogen Strategy Advisory Board this year. And the Hydrogen Strategies has been released. And again, that's going to be a part of an energy solution. But the discussion that we had there and the discussion I've been having in public is, look, what AEMO is doing is a good start, but you don't need an integrated system plan just for electricity. You need an integrated system plan for energy as a whole mm. because it's no point just an electricity system working if for example the transport system is which is essential to allow the electricity system to run you take diesel out you're going to have power plants stopping very very quickly because you know you can't distribute supplies you can't keep the infrastructure working the water supply system goes down uh, that's going to take your power system down. So you can look at it as a connected system. So we need an integrated system plan for energy as a whole, of which the electricity network system design is a great starting point. If we bring hydrogen into play, which they're going to do with a hydrogen strategy, it, again, great to see the strategies come out, but it's not just about hydrogen. Hydrogen as an energy uh, mode or capability or as an export is great but you can use it for transport you can use it for so many different things but hydrogen can help with the stability of an electricity network through electrolyzers through hydrogen gas generators by providing a demand load there for renewables it can do a lot more to help integrate an electrical net electricity network 
So it's not just about hydrogen, it's how does it affect the rest of the electricity network. Electricity network is important, but it won't function without other forms of energy, including diesel, which is the supply, which is the transport backbone of our society. So we need an integrated system plan for energy. So take what they've started and broaden its scope out. So we've got a great starting point. If you did that, transport would have to be picked up as a part of it because you can't have an energy system without an effective and reliant and resilient transport system. Well, I think that's right. And it's interesting that Daima is already starting to think about um, how transport is integrated into the system, assuming that a lot of it does go electric. Um, that's going to have demand and load issues, but also potential resource um, as a, um, a as a fleet of batteries that can be um, accessed at certain times. So um, it'll be interesting whether that actually broadens out from the AEMO work or whether we need a new institution to try and funnel that through. But um Yes, look, John, it's been great talking to you about this. Um, what um, I just want to finish off with a couple of just sort of broader questions. Um, you know, how optimistic are you that we can actually solve these problems? I mean, surely we're an intelligent nation. We can actually sort of sit down and actually sort of solve these issues. Um, that's my first question, and I've got one final one after that. Okay. So, look, uh, I, I guess one for you. So, I, I'm a migrant to the country. Came here in 1965. I only immigrated from the UK, but we've lived a lot of countries around the world. So we don't spend a year and a half in the UK. What I'd say is that we have intelligent capabilities in countries and a lot of capable people. But Australia, I think, is one of the few countries that I've come across, with the exception of the Aboriginal people and some migrant groups, that has not got existential threat in its DNA. So a convict nation, settler nation, federated, we didn't have to fight for our independence. A lot of Australians, I don't think, were aware of what was happening in World War II when, you know, Darwin was bombed and some things were going on. A lot of things were kept fairly quiet. Um, if you compare our history for the non-Aboriginals and you think about others, so if you were Euro European, uh, my wife's father was Polish. Now, about every 50 years, Poland was invaded and rolled over from one side to the other or disappeared at one stage and came back. Not uncommon through Europe. England's face existential threats. Most Asian countries have been existential threats, a lot of which was from colonisation. Uh, America faced you know, its fight for foundation at the start. If you, most countries have been through some absolute fight for their independence or way of life. We have not been there in Australia. We always felt that you know, the Brits would protect us until we found out in World War II that wasn't going to work. And now we think the Americans will protect us forever. And, we sit here and watch what Trump's doing and our horror grows by the day. We are too complacent. We're not dumb. We all have capabilities, but we're so complacent that we're happy to, oh, whatever's the cheapest thing, she'll be right. But the cheapest thing comes at a very high price. No. And we haven't learnt that lesson. Oh, it doesn't seem to me even even it's even worse than complacency. It's sort of a deliberate sort of you know bearing of the head in the sand. I think, you know, the overriding message that we got in recent bushfires was shut up and watch the cricket. Well, I think at a political level, I would argue part of it is willful blindness. Hmm. The, 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 look, there's no way we're going to solve one and a half degrees of this temperature thing. So it's like you've you've head off down a ski slope, but you didn't realise it was a double black diamond. You're going, holy cow, this is going to hurt. So you're doing what you can to slow down as you go down the slope. Uh, meanwhile, somebody goes past you just going hell for leather saying, there's not a problem until they hit the bottom of the slope. So 
We are headed for a significant climate change impact. What we're arguing today is what do we do to try and deal with what's happening and then stop it getting even worse than it will get. But I get a sense that quite a few of the politicians are being willfully blind. They're focusing on a three-year cycle. Um, just keep everybody happy in the short term and get to the election. But I'm seeing a fantastic awareness, motivation and actions at the community level, at the city level and at some state levels. Where I see a fundamental absence of this system level thinking or concern is at the federal level. So mm. on the one hand, I think our complacency as a nation is our biggest vulnerability. You know, let's ask the Aboriginal people what they feel about existential threat. On yeah. the other hand, I see a growing set of groundswell of action. So what we try to do in our little think tank that I chair now is look at all these things that are piecing together and say, how, how can you help integrate those arguments? How can you help corral those arguments so they reinforce each other? Because it's not happening at the political level. Uh, the, the, the reality of me says that we're going to face more and more crisis until it gets so bad that we get sick of the way we are treated by the current political system that is self-serving. It, it really is sad. I mean, I live in Canberra. I deal with this a lot. It's a detached reality. But that's going to require the Australian population to hold their own federal members to account, and that hasn't happened yet. As far as individual Australians and community groups and others, I have a lot of faith and confidence that we will work our way through this, but it's going to be incredibly painful. Well, it's, um, it's going to be um, it's a bit, 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 bit sobering. Just back to you then. Um, how long are you going to be keeping your Nissan Leaf? Will you be upgrading to a longer range EV? Yes, I looked at it. I, I wasn't going to buy a diesel. I was going to buy a hydrogen car. But unfortunately, the infrastructure all over that was a couple of years late. So I'll keep the Leaf probably for a couple more years. It's doing a fine job. Uh, probably at the 10-year mark, I'll go to a, a higher range EV because EVs are critical. And then uh, because I have some longer range uh, need, particularly towing trailers and things, I'll then switch to a hydrogen car once the infrastructure is deployed enough, which should be in about another two years, um, and end up having EV for town, hydrogen for uh, longer distance and you know, heavier, heavier carriage needs. Well, we'll look forward to um, hearing more about that. John, thank you very much for joining. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, hopefully we can start getting over some of these fuel security issues, either by having a plan or perhaps everyone will just pick up an EV and uh, um, we'll, we'll actually get enough supply at the, pri at the right prices and, um, and some of that infrastructure will actually occur. But um, um, it, um, we certainly seem to have the technologies at hand to deal with these things, if not the political will and the uh, management skills. And Giles, thanks for the opportunity to talk today. Thank you. Bye for now. And thanks to our sponsor, Solar Edge, for this series of interviews on the Driven podcast. And if you're interested in some of our other podcasts, do check out the Energy Insiders podcast and the Solar Insiders podcast, um, which will focus on broader issues in the energy system. And in the case of the Solar Insiders podcast, um, things to do with rooftop installations and battery storage and whatnot. So bye for now. And we'll be back again very soon. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge EV chargers combine solar energy and grid power to charge your electric vehicle up to four times faster than a standard wall charger. Whether you own an EV now or want to be EV ready, future-proof your home with SolarEdge. Visit solaredge.com slash AUS and drive your solar further.